guys. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, the special relationship between Abraham Lincoln and the Jews. When a title like Lincoln and the Jews comes across my desk, I have to tell you I get wary. Yeah, maybe Lincoln knew a Jew or two, maybe he exchanged letters with a rabbi here or there, but how historically significant really is that odd interaction? Does it merit an entire volume? In this case, the answer is yes. Lincoln and the Jews, written by historian Jonathan Sarna, is filled with reproductions of not one, not two, but scores of letters, government documents, photos, paintings, and other miscellany, documenting a rich and complex array of relationships between Abraham Lincoln and Jews. Those range from close friendships to professional ties, and they touch upon a gamut of spheres from the military to podiatry. That's right, feet, but more about that in just a bit. Jonathan Sarna is a professor of American Jewish history at Brandeis University. He's speaking with us today from that campus to help us make sense of this fascinating topic. Jonathan Sarna, welcome to Vox Tablet. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you? I'm well. Um, you are a preeminent historian of American Jews, particularly in Lincoln's time. In fact, you wrote a book for Next Book Press about General Grant expelling the Jews during the Civil War. What did you know about Lincoln's relationship to Jews before taking on this project? Um, I think I knew the key moments, uh, overturning Grant's order, the chaplaincy, uh, the fact uh, that Jews mourned his passing. But I certainly did not know that he had over a hundred Jewish acquaintances of different types. And I did not know the significance of his friendship with Abraham Jonas. And I certainly didn't know uh, much about his podiatrist, the 19th <laughs> century term was uh, chiropodist, Issachar Zachary. Uh, all of that is material that I learned while working with the collector Benjamin Chappelle on this volume. What was the impetus for this project? How did it come to be? Uh, actually, uh, Mr. Chappelle uh, heard me speak about Ulysses S. Grant and the Jews, and uh, he had this remarkable collection of a material on Lincoln and the Jews, and he came up to me and said, I must talk to you. He felt very strongly there ought to be a book for the 150th anniversary of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln that would really make available to a wider public this very interesting story, and I was persuaded. In the beginning of the book, you have a graphic that's called Lincoln's Jewish Connections, and Lincoln is at the center of this graphic, and there are concentric circles around it. They radiate out from him. What is the objective with that? Um, I think that um, anyone who looks at that graphic is astounded. Uh, who would have imagined that uh, there are... Uh, more than a hundred Jews who connect somehow with Lincoln. Uh, now, uh, some of them are people whom he knew well, like Abraham Jonas, who he calls 
his his uh, friend, um, Issachar Zachary, who we know visited uh, the presidential residence on numerous occasions. Others are simply Jews whom he pardoned or whom he appointed to something, uh, but there is no previous president who had so many different associations with Jews, and this does, I think, very much underscore the growing role of Jews in America in microcosm. This is the story of how uh, in the 19th century, the American Jewish community grows from maybe 3,000 when Lincoln was born in uh, 1809, and by 1865, it has grown to uh, uh, easily 150,000. Now, for some people, that was cause for alarm, and uh, it's easy to find examples of uh, individuals, some, some of them like uh, uh, Lincoln's own generals, Sherman and so on, uh, who were very negative towards those newcoming Jews. They distrusted them, they considered them all peddlers, smugglers, or worse. Uh, but that's not the case, it seems, with Lincoln. As the Jewish community grows, so his association with Jews grows. Uh, but, of course, it's not only Jews. Uh, Lincoln uh, had developed a reputation in his lifetime for befriending uh, those whom no one else would befriend. Uh, he befriended uh, black Americans. Uh, he befriended people of various uh, religions. Um, uh, he, he was proud of that reputation, and he wanted the Republican Party uh, to become a, a party that really brought together these downtrodden Americans who uh, would now be empowered. And uh, in the case of Jews, uh, one can certainly see that he had this extraordinary group of Jewish connections, and they considered him to have been his friend, uh, which in the 19th century was no small matter. You mentioned his foot doctor, Issachar Zachary. Uh, how did they come to become acquainted, and how is their friendship manifested in the documents? Um, Issachar Zachary is one of the most curious uh, characters to have crossed Lincoln's path. Uh, Zachary was a very successful and significant Chiropodist. Indeed, it turns out that he helped to establish a chiropody, which was somewhat looked down upon. Uh, he had developed ways of um, improving and healing people's feet without, uh, uh, without a lot of blood. Uh, he, he had a big reputation in New York. And once the war starts, the idea arises, may well have been Zachary's idea, that there ought to be a chiropody corps in the military to keep the feet of the Union soldiers uh, in good shape. And uh, remember, we're talking about a time when uh, shoes uh, were not made to fit, and uh, they weren't left shoes and right shoes, and... Uh, 
uh, the poor uh, very frequently had a tremendous feet discomfort. Um, as part of this idea for a chiropody core, Zachary goes to Washington and he treats the feet of a numerous famous people. And whenever Zachary treated the feet of a famous person, uh, he would make sure that that person uh, would write a note in uh, attesting to the wonderful treatment. Uh, and eventually, Zachary is recommended to Abraham Lincoln, who had famously painful and uncomfortable feet. And lo and behold, Lincoln writes no fewer than three different testimonials for Zachary, uh, the third of which I think was clearly designed to encourage the Surgeon General to create this chiropody core uh, with Zachary at its head. But the Surgeon General actually didn't much believe in chiropody. Chiropody um, was not deeply respected by doctors uh, in those days. Even in our day, podiatry is looked down upon by many in the medical profession. Maybe that's why Jews were able to be uh, chiropodists in the 19th century. In any case, the Surgeon General refuses to bring a chiropody core um, uh, into existence, but um, uh, Zachary is not daunted by that, and he continues uh, to treat the president's feet. We know he visited regularly at the White House, and eventually, astonishingly, Lincoln sends him to New Orleans in the hope that uh, Zachary will use his own connections to New Orleans Jews to try and sway those Jews to support Lincoln, to look favorably upon the Union, and to um, uh, help promote reconciliation. Uh, this is a fascinating early American example of uh, uh, political use of Jewish connections to um, uh, promote one of Lincoln's aims to win uh, Louisianians uh, uh, back into the Union. And um, well, it's not totally clear how successful Zachary was. Uh, he certainly thought he was uh, successful, made those claims. Uh, later still, Zachary works very hard to win Jewish support for Lincoln uh, in the 1864 election. And again, this is a fascinating example of uh, the use of what we might call Jewish politics, the Jewish vote in, um, uh, in a national uh, election. Abraham Lincoln grew up uh, in a hardscrabble religious Christian family. Was there anything in his upbringing that might have predisposed him to be uh, so tolerant of religious difference and to be, in particular, uh, tolerant of Jews and welcoming to them? Um, one can't know for sure, but it is certainly clear that Lincoln grew up, first of all, in a household where the Bible was central. And like many Puritans, an early 
uh, Americans. Um, he was much more likely to turn to what he would have called the Old Testament than the New. He knew them both, but um, his parents belonged to a kind of small Baptist church where uh, the Old Testament was in many ways privileged. Um, what I discovered, which was very interesting, was that this church deeply believed in the idea that uh, what God had decided uh, was decided. It was predetermined. Um, nothing man could do would change it. So, for example, uh, whereas many Americans in the 1820s supported missionary activities of one kind or another, including missions to convert the Jews, believing that this would bring about uh, the coming of the Christian Messiah, Lincoln's parents had no interest in that at all. Uh, and Lincoln's church thought it was the silliest idea if God had predetermined that you were a Jew, you were going to be a Jew. And that has an implication. You kind of, for Lincoln, you accept people the way they are. That's how God made them. And uh, I think that uh, his coming to terms with that idea is very important, obviously. Later, he is going to try and shape history and conclude that if God made you a slave, um, uh, you were uh, not supposed to be a slave, that this was something human beings did. But nevertheless, uh, he continues for some time to believe deeply that much uh, is due to destiny. Uh, and this, in his case, I think led him to be tolerant of all sorts of people uh, whom others tried to change and transform. Jonathan, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that when you first came to this project, uh, there were a few things outstanding in your mind that you knew about Lincoln's relationships to the Jews. One of them had to do uh, with the chaplaincy. Tell us a little bit what you were referring to. What was the letter having to do with the chaplaincy? Uh, what's important uh, to know is that chaplains in the American military uh, were invariably Christian uh, in the early part of the 19th century. And um, the chaplaincy law, when it's enacted um, uh, with the outbreak of the Civil War, you've got to increase the army, so clearly you need more chaplains. And Congress uh, makes clear that the chaplain needs to be a minister of some Christian denomination. Um, and that is not a small matter because it meant that for all that the Constitution offered uh, Jews equality, uh, free exercise of religion, in the military, Jews would be excluded from the chaplaincy. And since uh, there were, by the end of the Civil War, thousands of uh, Jewish uh, troops in the Union Army, maybe as many as 8,000, 
not having a chaplain, a Jewish chaplain, meant that uh, uh, they would be discriminated against. Now, uh, this was not just theory. Uh, there were uh, different units that had significant numbers of Jews, and uh, uh, one of them elected a Jew, Michael Allen, as its chaplain. Um, uh, he wasn't ordained, but uh, he'd certainly studied, uh, was a capable lay reader of the liturgy, uh, very pious, and uh, we know that he serves as chaplain. We actually have um, uh, his diary. And then one fine day, um, a, a visiting worker from the Young Men's Christian Association, what we know as the YMCA, discovers that a Jew is serving as a chaplain. Uh, he knows that's a violation of the law. And poor Michael Allen has to send in his resignation. And at that point, the same unit, um, known as the Cameron Dragoons, uh, they, as a test case, select um, uh, Arnold Fischel, the assistant minister at Sherith Israel Congregation in New York, what we call today the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, mm -hmm. and um, they elect him as chaplain. Uh, this time, everybody follows the rules. They uh, apply to the Secretary of War to uh, make the appointment official, and the Secretary of War writes that uh, the chaplain appointed by vote of the field officers and the company commanders must be a regular ordained minister of some Christian denomination, and had it not been for that legal impediment, you know, they would happily have uh, accepted uh, the Reverend Dr. Arnold Fischel, but since he's not a Christian, they won't. Well, that really confirmed uh, that uh, uh, Jews were at a great disadvantage. Uh, they're suddenly second-class citizens in the United States, and uh, they are not going to have their spiritual and pastoral needs met by chaplains while um, uh, everybody else will. Um, and the Jewish community really organizes to try and change this. Uh, in the end, Reverend Fischel himself goes to Washington with the thought of uh, meeting with Lincoln to let him know about this situation. Lincoln um, at once invites Fischel in. He reads his papers, and uh, this, for the first time, brings to his notice uh, that uh, Jews are discriminated against in the chaplaincy, and uh, Lincoln promises uh, he will try to have the situation uh, changed. Um, we, we actually uh, uh, have Fischl's letters in his own hand in um, which he quotes uh, the different letters that Lincoln sends him and what happened to him in the White House and so on. And he quotes a letter from Lincoln 
uh, in which the president writes, there are several particulars in which the present law in regard to chaplains is supposed to be deficient, all of which I now design presenting to the appropriate committee of Congress. I shall try to have a new law broad enough to cover what is desired by you in behalf of the Israelites. Now, uh, what is so fascinating is to see um, how Lincoln, the consummate politician, makes this happen. After all, uh, how is Congress going to vote to uh, change uh, a law that uh, is seemingly benefiting Christians, that many Christians supported? Everyone who votes for that uh, will seemingly lose his job. So you see Lincoln, the genius politician, working with Congress. First of all, they don't change the language. They simply reinterpret the language to construe it to mean something different, to mean a regularly ordained minister of some religious denomination. And then uh, they stick this into an amendment to um, a very popular bill which will raise the salary of army officers. Nobody votes against a bill that raises the salary of popular army officers in wartime. It's an amendment. It passes uh, buried deep in the amendment, so deep that actually no one had ever found it until uh, I discovered it in that obscure act. And, um, and then... Lincoln immediately uh, appoints the first Jewish chaplain who is suggested to him, a man uh, named Jacob Frankel. The Surgeon General obliges, and uh, Jacob Frankel is appointed the first Jewish chaplain, and that changes history. And one need only think about how different American Jewish history would have been uh, had Jews been legally disadvantaged in the Civil War and had the chaplaincy been a Christian uh, preserve. Uh, thanks to Lincoln, that doesn't happen. Lincoln was shot on April 14th in 1865, so 150 years ago, and he died the next morning on April 15th. In the book, you include a reproduction of a painting by Alonzo uh, Chapel titled The Last Hours of Lincoln. And in this scene, we have Lincoln laid out on a bed surrounded by a crush of doctors. What more can you tell us about what the painting shows? Well, what is um, so interesting about this very, very famous uh, painting from 1867 is that one of the central figures, the man who is gazing intently at the president and you know, seems to be a central doctor, turns out to be a Russian-born Jewish ophthalmologist named Charles H. Lieberman, who was a leading Washington physician and uh, very significant uh, in uh, the medical world in Washington. And uh, uh, we know that... Uh, uh, he poured brandy down the president's throat, removed hair from the area of the wound, and diagnosed the gunshot as fatal. And once again, one sees here the growing impact 
of Jewish immigrants. Uh, he was uh, apparently the central doctor, um, at least as depicted in the painting. And again, um, uh, it reminds us that, uh, even as you said in your opening, you might not think Lincoln and the Jews uh, would be a very a promising subject, but suddenly Jews pop up in all sorts of astonishing places throughout Lincoln's life and career. And this shows us how important Lincoln was to the inclusion of Jews in America, uh, both the legal inclusion, uh, but also the social inclusion of Jews. Jews are just part of the story of his life in a normal way, and uh, uh, that, uh, in a way, uh, sets the foundation for the subsequent inclusion of Jews in uh, the, the, the political system and in American society. Jonathan Sarna, thank you so very much for speaking with us. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Jonathan Sarna is a professor of American Jewish history at Brandeis University. He is the co-author, along with Benjamin Chappelle, of Lincoln and the Jews, A History. It's out from Thomas Dunn Books. Many of the documents and artifacts that appear in the book are now on display here in New York at the New York Historical Society. You can see them in person through June 7th. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. We are, as ever, eager to hear your feedback, so please do send us a note at podcast at tabletmag.com. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you.